Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 202, The Old Man Mad About Art. This week, I'd like to turn our attention to something we haven't talked about all that much on this show, art. And there's a very simple reason for that. I'm not an art historian, and what I do know about the subject is self-taught and pretty uneven. That said, I think our subject for today is so incredibly interesting and important that it's worth me getting the hell over it and trying my hand at something new. But to do that, first we have to talk a little bit about what art means in the world of pre-modern Japan, specifically the Japan of the late 1700s and early 1800s. The first thing we need to do is understand the role of art in Japanese elite culture, and to understand that, we need to look at the same place we've looked to understand so much else about Japan, China. Specifically, China of the late Ming Dynasty, which threw off the rule of the Mongol Khans and led China into one of its glorious high peaks of cultural attainment. The Ming Dynasty, as with the rest of Imperial China, was nominally the domain of the Son of Heaven, China's Emperor. In practice, however, like most of Chinese imperial history, real power lay with a semi-hereditary scholar aristocracy called the Shur whose authority was derived from their mastery of the canon of Confucian philosophy and demonstrated in a series of rigorous exams. However, sure status didn't just require being able to rattle off quotations from the doctrine of the mean on command, you were also expected to be a person of culture and refinement. That meant mastery of artistic pursuits. If you're wondering why a government bureaucrat would be expected to be an artist, it has to do with the nature of Confucian philosophy itself. An ideal, sagely person in Confucian thought is supposed to be an example of everything good about civilization, and that includes being refined enough to appreciate art. So in practice, a member of the Shur class was expected to be a skilled calligrapher and to have some facility with poetry and even painting. Now, when the Tokugawa shoguns began building a new order for Japan, they incorporated some of these ideas on the advice of Japanese Confucian scholars. Some aspects of the Chinese system, like a meritocratic exam system, were total non-starters in Japan, but the idea that samurai as a ruling class should have some basic understanding of art, or at least be able to appreciate it as an aesthetic pursuit, did translate. Across the Edo period, you can find records of samurai praised not for their swordsmanship, or at least not just for their swordsmanship, but for their calligraphic talents or their ability to pen a fine poem. The second thing we need to understand about the Edo period is that it's an age when there really is a market for art. By the 1700s, Japan was richer than it had ever been, and the wealthy, which included samurai but also merchant families and peasants, were looking for things to demonstrate that wealth with. And nothing says I have more money than I know what to do with than your very own art collection. Both of these factors helped create a thriving market for artwork and a solid living for talented artists. But the nature of the art market they helped create was somewhat different from what you might expect. You see, an important part of the East Asian artistic tradition was not merely the final product, but the way in which it was produced. 
art was not judged merely for what came out, but for how it came out. In poetry, for example, we have the renga genre, in which a series of poets take turns writing the stanzas of one long poem, each riffing off of the last, and doing so extemporaneously, with no time to plan ahead. In the art world, too, the ability to produce on demand and to operate under unusual circumstances was greatly prized. It was widely thought that a good piece should not only be aesthetically pleasing, but have a good story behind it. Which brings us to the subject of our work, a man who would exemplify all of these talents, Katsushika Hokusai. We know a bit about Hokusai's early life, though the exact date of his birth is open to some question. The most common date given is October 31st, 1760. We do know that he was born to a family of artisans living in the great city of Edo. In 1760, Edo was unrecognizable from what it had been a century and a half earlier. When Tokugawa Ieyasu had made the city his capital, it was a small fishing village with a minor castle complex, dwarfed by cities like Kamakura to the south. However, a century and a half of peace, economic development, and most importantly, political significance, including the not entirely willing presence of most of Japan's ruling elite, who demonstrated their subservience to the shogun by visiting the capital regularly and leaving their families there, well, all of that had transformed the city into a sprawl. Somewhere north of 1.2 million people lived in the shogun's capital, making it the largest city on the planet at the time. Hokusai's father had made a career out of benefiting from this enormous boom in population. He was a mirror maker, with a thriving trade in selling the high-quality glass mirrors that so impressed Europeans visiting Asia to the rich and the vain. In some versions of Hokusai's life story, his artistic inclinations came from his father. Some of those mirrors had decorated edges, and it's sometimes suggested that helping his father decorate the mirrors was how Hokusai got his interest in art. Interestingly, we know that Hokusai was never designated as his father's heir, which suggests that he was the son of a concubine rather than a wife, and also says something about his father's wealth, if he could afford to keep a concubine. In 1774, at the tender age of 14, Hokusai was apprenticed out to a local woodcarver, and four years after that, he ended up apprenticed to a local artist, a woodblock printmaker named Katsukawa Shunsho. Now, if you're a real nerd about Japanese art, you've probably heard that name before. Shunsho has a reputation as one of the best artists of the late 18th century. In particular, Shunsho is associated with the refinement of one of the most important genres of Edo period art, the yakusha-e. And that brings us back to something we've already talked about, kabuki. By the late 1700s, kabuki had grown into a national phenomenon, and Edo in particular had a thriving theatrical scene. Though today the most famous kabuki theater in Tokyo, the Kabukiza, is in the Ginza district, during Hokusai's time the main theaters were in the Dockside district of Tsukiji, which gives you an idea, by the by, of exactly who this type of theater was targeted at. Not the rich and powerful who gravitated to neighborhoods like the Ginza right next to the Shogun's palace, but merchants, townsmen, 
what we might even, somewhat ahistorically, call a proto-middle class. Which isn't to say, by the way, rich folks did not show up to see Kabuki, they just didn't do so openly, because tawdry theater was beneath the dignity of a samurai. But anyway, the success of Kabuki as a genre created a whole market around the performances, of which one segment was Yaksha-e. These were portraits of actors, and remember, only actors, no ladies allowed, in various action shots. You could buy these pictures as souvenirs from a show, or simply to show off your tastes with an image of your favorite play or favorite actor. Shunsho's big innovation was to formalize a set of tags, you might call them, for each actor. These would allow you to distinguish the specific actor across Yaksha-e depicting different plays. Shunsho did this by developing a more realistic style with clear facial features, and an emphasis on portraying idiosyncrasies that specific actors were known for. The kabuki troops in Edo, by the way, loved this. After all, it was great marketing. So this is where Hokusai got his start, with an artistic form that would make him famous, the woodblock print. Woodblock printing has a long history dating back to China's Tang Dynasty, though the earliest Chinese printing press dates back to the 200s, contemporary with the Roman Empire. It was during the Tang Dynasty, however, that the printing press started to see heavy use. The complex nature of written Chinese, with its thousands of different characters, made a system of arranged movable type, like the kind used in Western printing presses, unfeasible. You'd be hunting around in a bucket of thousands of characters for hours. So instead, printers took to woodblock printing, on which a carved wooden stamp was used to create an impression on paper. The fact that these stamps were hand-carved also made it easier to mix an image with text. It was with woodblocks, which could be mass-produced and thus mass-marketed, that Hokusai got his start, producing woodcuts of kabuki actors for mass consumption. He apparently had something of a talent for it, because after only one year with Shunsho, the master decided to let Hokusai sell his work under his own name. Shunsho also gave Hokusai a new name, Shunro. The fact that it incorporated a syllable from Shunsho's own name is a sign of the high esteem in which the young apprentice was held. That brings us to something else we should deal with, the sheer number of names under which Hokusai worked. Changing one's name was not an uncommon thing in pre-modern Asia. You were expected to have different names for different circumstances, for example, a formal given name and a separate literary name under which you would write poetry, and also to change your name to mark turning points in your life. Witness, for example, Hashiba Hideyoshi's decision to change his family name to the far more regal-sounding Toyotomi, or Matsudaira Motoyasu becoming Tokugawa Ieyasu. Hokusai, however, took this to an entirely new level, taking over 30 different names over the course of his life. Indeed, he changed names so frequently that art historians actually use his different names to mark off the periods of his work. I'm obviously not going to be using all of those names because that would be really confusing. I'm only going to mention them where I think they are relevant. Anyway, for the next 15 years, Hokusai's career was tied closely to that of Shunsho, 
and he operated as a rising star within Shunsho's stable of apprentices. He also got married, though very little is known of his first wife, except that she died of unknown causes in the 1790s. The real turning point for Hokusai was 1793, when Shunsho died and Hokusai was forced to strike out on his own. For example, he began to explore painting as a medium, and did it with such enthusiasm that he studied with two different competing schools, the Katsukawa and Kano schools, and when he was caught, he was actually kicked out of the Katsukawa school for violating their edicts against working outside of their specific school. Hokusai even began to pick up collections of European paintings, which were available from Dutch merchants in Nagasaki and widely reproduced in a country where copyrights, especially foreign copyrights, were more guidelines than actual rules until around, say, the 1970s. Tragically, I have not been able to find a record of which European artists Hokusai managed to get his hands on, but we do know the genre of those Western paintings. They were mostly landscapes. At the time, the real on-trend subject for Western landscape paintings emphasized topographical accuracy along with dramatic lighting and shading. Hokusai found those images so striking that he moved his primary artistic focus away from kabuki actors and towards landscapes. For example, one of his very first woodcut landscapes, Fireworks Over Ryogoku Bridge, dates from this time. Anyway, Hokusai found time for one more apprenticeship to the Tawaraya school of brush painters and to get remarried in 1797 before striking out on his own as an independent artist in 1798 and adopting yet another new name while he did so, which would be unremarkable except that it's the first time he started using Hokusai as a given name. If you're wondering, the name means North Studio, a reference not only to the location of his workspace, but to his religious faith. Hokusai was a devout Nichiren Buddhist, and in Nichiren Buddhism, North is associated with a variety of positive things. The North Star in particular is associated with the Bodhisattva Myoken, and the Buddha Vairokana, known in Japanese as Yakushin-yorai, the Buddha of Medicine. As an independent artist, Hokusai's fame began to grow with astonishing rapidity. His dramatic landscapes in particular, influenced by the pastoral scenes of European art, and so unlike what had come before in Japan, proved incredibly popular. Now, a complete overview of Hokusai's works is literally impossible here, because of the simple fact that Hokusai was a genuinely professional artist. Art was his living, which means that to pay his bills, he had to make a great deal of it. So instead, I'm going to focus on some specific moments from Hokusai's career that I think are of particular importance. The first, in 1804, involved a Buddhist temple in Nagoya, specifically the local branch of Honganji, a temple belonging to the Jodo Shinshu, or True Pure Land Buddhist sect. If you don't remember, these are the guys who venerate a specific Buddha, Amida, and who were very militarized in the Sengoku period and actually conquered a big part of Japan. By 1804, however, their conquering days were behind them, but Jodo Shinshu was still quite popular, and most Honganji temples were on good fiscal footing, 
So the Nagoya one decided to commission this Hokusai guy, who everyone seems to love, to do something for them. And oh boy, did he do something for them. Specifically, he painted an image of Daruma, better known by his Sanskrit name Bodhidharma, the Indian monk who brought Buddhism to China, and whose successors brought it to Japan. What's so special about that, though? I mean, Daruma paintings are not that unusual. Well, what made it special was the size. The paper was almost 200 meters long, about 600 feet. Hokusai painted it using a broom and a bunch of buckets full of ink. Tragically, the original was destroyed in 1945 during the American firebombing raids. On another occasion, Hokusai was summoned to the court of the sitting shogun, Tokugawa Ienari, who wanted to see what this guy was all about. Hokusai was granted a shogunal audience and asked to paint something for the shogun. Obligingly, Hokusai found a piece of paper and drew a single curved blue line across it. Then, to the astonishment of all, he procured a live chicken, dipped the chicken's feet in red ink, and shooed it across the paper, leaving its footprints behind. He then presented the finished work to the shogun, proclaiming that it was an image of the river Tatsuta in Nara, with maple leaves floating down it. This hilarious joke is not only a great piece of performance art, but a highly erudite reference to poem number 69 of the poem collection Hyakunin Ishu, which reads, quote, By the windstorm's blast from Mimura's mountain slopes, maple leaves are torn, which turn Tatsuta River into a rich brocade. The shogun was supposedly deeply amused. Again, tragically, the original does not survive. Both of these stories share the same fundamental point. Hokusai was not merely an artist, but a showman. Like the Ming Dynasty ideal of a scholar-gentleman, he was concerned not only with what he produced, but how he produced it, and putting on a good show. To take the example of the great Daruma painting at Nagoya, Hokusai didn't actually tell anybody what he was going to do, he just started doing it. And you can imagine the kind of crowd it drew, full of people who maybe at first thought he was crazy, or were trying to guess what it was, but who eventually started to figure it out. A crowd, in other words, engaging with the painting as it was being made. I mean, I've got a TV and a Netflix password, and I'd still pay to see that. That sounds awesome. And the whole chicken thing, who comes up with that on the spot? Hokusai was then not only an artist, but a showman, and that's where his legendary status came from. Now, the last two things I want to highlight from his career relate to specific works that are still known today. But to discuss the first, we have to talk about another way Hokusai made money. Students. Apprenticeships were a common part of life for townsmen in Edo, Japan. An individual, or more commonly a family, would pay a fee for a master to train one of their children, and in return, the master would provide room and board as well as instruction. Hokusai took on 50 such students in his lifetime, including his own daughter, Katsushika Oi, who became a moderately famous artist in her own right, but about whom, tragically, very little is known. However, the margins on taking on students like this were always pretty slim, and while Hokusai had some real boom periods for selling his work, he also had a couple droughts. 
1815, during one such period, he hit on an idea. Rather than taking on students directly, what if he sold a training manual? And thus was born the Hokusai manga, not to be confused with manga in the modern sense of being like a comic book. The Hokusai manga was instead a sort of sketchbook designed to show a variety of scenes, which aspiring artists could then study and copy to learn a little bit of Hokusai's style. The first volume proved to be such a hit that Hokusai continued making more of them until he died. The final volume was actually published posthumously. All told, the complete Hokusai manga has 15 volumes. Now, the Hokusai manga is justifiably famous as an example of artistic brilliance. It's a stunning portrayal of everything from day-to-day -day life to images of gods and spirits. What makes it really interesting to history nerd types, however, is Hokusai's devotion to realism. So much of what we know about what daily life looked like during this period, what clothing people wore, hairstyles, how neighborhoods were arranged, how people traveled, what they ate, so much, we know it because we can see it in the Hokusai manga. Finally, of course, we have to talk about the most famous work Hokusai ever made from his most famous series of works. In 1820, Hokusai began this series once again in response to popular demand, in this case for travel scenes as a supplement to a nascent tourism industry. Now, tourism as we understand it didn't exist, of course, but shrines or temple pilgrimages served a similar purpose, and often the sightseeing and partying overwhelmed the religious side of things. For pilgrims along Japan's most crowded road, the Tokaido, running from Edo to Kyoto, one of the most powerful images they encountered was Mount Fuji. It was a natural choice for some kind of commemorative image, and so Hokusai took it upon himself to produce a series of images of the mountain viewed from various places a tourist might see it, a series he inventively called the 36 Views of Mount Fuji. Due to popular demand, he actually added 10 more images, so there are actually 46 views of the 36 views of Mount Fuji. All of the images are spectacular. You see everything from the mountain framed by pilgrims walking through a rice paddy to the thriving commercial districts of Edo, but no single image in the series is more famous than the Great Wave off Kanagawa. If you think you've never seen this image before, you probably have. It's the most reproduced work of Japanese art ever created, and one of the most famous pieces in the history of humanity. Mount Fuji, in the background, is framed by a gigantic wave coming in from the left, with small fishing boats riding the wave. It's dramatic and beautiful, and the power of the wave contrasts so wonderfully with the serenity of the mountain and the sky. It also makes use, by the way, of another imported Western technique, vanishing point perspective, which gives the wave in particular a depth it didn't otherwise have. The Great Wave off Kanagawa was a bit of a personal triumph for Hokusai for that exact reason. He'd done several images centered on massive waves before, but none of them ever came out looking this good. They looked kind of wooden, or the image was so busy it was hard to focus on. It's hard to describe. I'll post some examples so you can see what I mean. Though the Great Wave is probably Hokusai's best-known achievement, his career did continue forward. 
he produced several more fantastic landscape series, including a follow-up to the 36 views, very aptly called the 100 views of Mount Fuji. In 1830, Hokusai took my favorite name for him, Gakkyo Rojin Manji, the old man who is crazy about art. In a volume of the 100 views of Mount Fuji published that year, he wrote a postscript in which he so wonderfully summed up the life journey of an artist. Quote, From the age of six, I have had a passion for copying the form of things, and since the age of 50, I have published many drawings. Yet of all I drew by my 70th year, there is nothing worth taking into account. At 73, I partially understood the structure of animals, birds, insects, and fish, and the life of grasses and plants. And so at 86, I shall progress further, at 90, I shall even further penetrate their secret meaning, and by 100, I shall perhaps have truly reached the level of the marvelous and divine. When I am 110, each dot, each line, will possess a life of its own. By the 1830s, Hokusai's work was beginning to be eclipsed by his younger contemporaries, but he never stopped working. He finished the fantastically beautiful Ducks on a Stream, at the age of 87. He finally died in 1849, supposedly exclaiming on his deathbed, quote, If only heaven will give me just another ten years, just five more years, then I could become a real painter. Hokusai's legacy is obviously a tremendous one. I think it's fair to call him the greatest artist in Japanese history. But, as with so much else we've discussed, his legacy is not just confined to Japan. His work started to filter into Europe as early as the 1830s, when Dutch traders got their hands on published volumes of it. Once Perry opened Japan only four years after his death, Hokusai's work began to flood into the European consciousness. His prints became the beachhead for a new artistic movement, Japanism, which strove to mimic the natural and restrained aesthetic of Japanese art as well as the Japanese focus on the use of color rather than clean lines to illustrate a scene, which was actually a big influence on Impressionism. A veritable who's who of 19th century European artists collected Hokusai prints. Edgar Degas, Paul Gauguin, Vincent van Gogh, and yes, it's van Gogh, not van Gogh, Edward Manet, Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, and many others. Claude Monet owned 23 Hokusai prints and 250 general Japanese prints, and was actually so swept up in interest in the country that he built a Japanese-style garden in his house and bought a kimono for his wife to wear. Degas went so far as to outright copy poses from the Hokusai manga. His Marie Cassatt at the Louvre lifts the titular Marie's stance from a scene in the Hokusai manga. Hokusai's work became so famous that it revived the genre of printmaking in Europe, which had fallen far from the medieval days of men like Albrecht Dürer. All of this is simply to say that Hokusai's influence was truly profound around the entire world. He's not just a genius of Japanese art, but a genius of human art. He's justifiably considered one of the greatest artists in human history, but in the end, to take him at his word... I guess he never was a real painter. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Javier Picon, Kylon Eckert, and Matt Bruckner for donating to support the show. To join them, 
To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week as we tackle one of the great figures of Japanese Buddhism, Kukai.